Thank you, Sarah. Good morning. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. My name is Andrew. I'm also one of the pastors here. Uh, and as we do every week before we uh, open God's word together, it's a great privilege to do that uh, with one another. Let's pause and take just a moment to ask for God's help in that together. As, as I speak God's word, as you hear it, um, let's ask for God to be uh, in and through all of that. So let's pray together. God, thank you that um, it is true as we sang that you're, in, in your creative work, uh, the same way that you spoke the world in, into existence um, and, and it obeys you, which is incredible. The wind goes where you tell it. Um, you, you have come uh, and, and you have, you've given us instructions, ways to follow you. And I pray that we would be obedient even today as we hear from you. Um, about what it means to rest. God, I, I pray as I speak your word, uh, that where I say my own things, that they, they would fall away, go uh, away and be forgotten. Where I speak after you, God, I pray that your spirit would do the work of changing us to be more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. I read an article uh, recently about a new religion that is taking hold in certain circles of American culture. Some of you are in these circles, uh, or you have kids in these circles. I, I'm in it, for sure. And it's, it's a religion that's spreading quickly. Its temples are everywhere. Now, it doesn't have anything to do with reincarnation or crystals or oils. It's actually a lot subtler than that. So Derek Thompson, he's a writer at The Atlantic, uh, the staff writer. He highlights in an article published last month this religion, and it's called, he calls it workism. And he argues that it's making people miserable. So while traditional forms of religious practice, commitment, or going to church, being involved in some sort of faith community, while that's sort of on the decline, he's arguing that our human desire for meaning, for purpose, it's, it's still alive and well. We've just made it fit, sort of this ultimate meaning, identity, purpose, we've made it fit into our ideas of work. He says it like this. He says, in the past century, the American conception of work has shifted from jobs to careers to callings, from necessity to status to meaning, which we wouldn't necessarily argue is wrong, in some ways, it's good to understand calling and vocation together as it relates to our work. We talked about that last week. We were made to work. But then he, defi he defines workism like this. It's the belief that work is not only necessary to, to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. The cent like central, it's core to who you are. What you do is core to who you are. And it's hard to argue with that assessment of sort of our cultural moment, our day. So it's usually my second question when I ask someone, when I meet someone for the first time. Hi, what's your name? Oh, great, Joe. Good to meet you. What do you do? It's the way that we've sort of come to identify ourselves is by what we do. And all of it adds up when it comes to workism, sort of this, the greatest heresy of workism is rest. And the, and the, the greatest sin is a day off taking time, taking a break. 
Now, we would rare, rarely say such a thing, but that's sort of the cultural air we breathe, the subtle lie that can start to shape our hopes, our dreams, our expectations, our engagement with work, our jobs, our calling. And it's making us miserable. That's how he's, that's the argument he's making. I, I think he's right. We were never meant to import ultimate meaning into our careers and callings. He says, says it like this, our desks were never meant to be our altars. Just a good way to say it. Now, thankfully, we worship a different God. Hope, hopefully, workism is not where we're putting our hope. We don't have a gospel of work. We have a gospel of grace. We have a different God with a better design for life, who knows exactly what we need for joy, for meaning, for purpose, how to be fully human in all of life. And that's what we're looking at this morning. As we've gone back to Genesis, if, if you're new here, we've been walking through this book, and we're going to look this morning at, at this truth from Genesis 2, what we all need, you and I, what we all need is we need a seventh day. We all need rest. I doubt anyone here is going to argue against that point. We all need rest. But we need more than just sort of a long weekend here or there, a beach trip every year. We need the kind of rest that is described here in Genesis 2. You need a seventh day. And I want to explore two, two reasons that's true this morning. Then we'll see how Jesus himself makes makes it possible, makes seventh day rest possible. So again, we'll start in Genesis 2. We're actually going to go out of Genesis, if I'm allowed, uh, to another text uh, in Exodus to see where this pattern that's set here at the beginning, this opening account of the Bible, how this pattern plays out in the life of God's people. And again, if you're new, so we've been in Genesis a couple weeks. Now we're, we're learning about the beginning of everything, all of it. God's incredible work of creation, how he spoke it into existence out of nothing and how every bit of it, every corner of his created order is good before, before we messed it up. We're not there yet. And we've covered the ground how we, are, we have a special place in the created order. As those who are made like him in his image with intrinsic worth with a job to do. And now we come to Genesis 2, verse 1, which really sort of marks the, the end of this first section. It points back to 1, verse 1, as the other bookend of this account, the first chapter. Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all of it out of nothing, created. And then 2, 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them. It's kind of bookend of this account. God works powerfully, brilliantly, creatively. For six days, he creates everything good. He invites us to join him in the cultivation, the, the care of his good world. That was last week. And then Genesis 2-2. With that as the backdrop, here's what we read in Genesis 2-2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, 
because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So you and I, we need a seventh day. It's our first point, if you're taking notes. We need a seventh day because God made you that way. It's profound, I know. That's why I get paid the big, the big bucks up here. It's simple, but it's true. We need, we need a seventh day because God made you with rest in mind. He's made us in his image. Literally, we talked a couple weeks ago, literally little idols that represent and reflect him in the world. That's what it means to be an image bearer, to be made in his image. And last week we talked about how we were made with work in mind, to be gardeners, to be stewards. We have a job description in this world. It doesn't earn us anything. We can't lose any of our value if we can't work. We're intrinsically valuable because we're made in his image. But part of what it means to be made in his image is to be a worker. But that's not the full picture. If we're going to fully, completely image our God, we can't miss the seventh day. Verse 2, God made you to stop and rest just like he did. So rest, it's literally the word uh, Shabbat. It's our, our, it's where our English word Sabbath comes from. And it means, plainly, it just means ceasing. Literally, God stopped. The God of the universe stopped, which hit me this week in a fresh way. But that would be true. The God, the all-powerful, all-knowing God just stops and rests. Now, Sabbath is more than ceasing. We'll get to that. It's more than just stopping. But it's certainly not less. Now, of course, he, it doesn't, God doesn't rest because work is bad. If, if you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that, that we don't think that's true. Work is inherently good. And he also doesn't rest because he's tired or he needs a break. God rests on the seventh day because the work is finished. It's completed. I hope you know the feeling, that feeling, like walking away from a project that is done or pushing print on that final or crossing the finish line after months of training or finally finishing that home project. I don't really know what that feels like. I hope you do. I actually walked through our, the space that we're, we're hoping to purchase soon, walked through that again this past week. And for a moment, I tried to envision a fi a, a, like a finished church. It's a little tough. There's not much light in there. It's hard to see. We've actually had some initial sort of floor plans this last week that are energizing. It's helping. But I was trying to imagine all of us gathered there, like ready to dedicate it to God and his, and his work in Shawnee. Someday we'll get there, right? But that's, that is what's happening in Genesis 2. God's completed the work of building his temple. All of creation is his dwelling place where he has put us to be with him for worship, this new place for all of his image bearers to be with him, and it's finished. It's like a dedication ceremony. God stops and looks out over what he has done and rests in it. So here, in the opening chapter of the Bible, God, he sets for us a pattern to follow, this work and rest pattern, a rhythm for life. Six days of work and then Sabbath on the seventh. You'll notice the other days 
in the account, the formula, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day, the second day, the fifth, the sixth. This is pattern all through Genesis 1. But not here, not on the seventh day. There's no mention of evening. There's no mention of morning. The seventh day, it's special. God blesses it, calls it holy. It's set apart. It's different. It's unique. And actually extends on into an endless future of rest and delight in what God has done. This is not the God of workism. Ours is a, a maker, a creator who rests, and he gives it to us. Sabbath rest is a gift, friends. So take it. In fact, it's a gift that we can't, we cannot afford to turn down. We were designed for it. Just like we were designed to work, to produce, to create. Sabbath rest is, is part of what it means to be human. Praise God. So be human and stop. I mean, you're like God when you do, when you cease, when you rest, when you sleep in on a Saturday morning or get a nap this afternoon. You image the glorious God of rest. I thought I might get like one amen for that. It's just not who we are, I guess. You weren't meant to work nonstop, to always achieve, to always accomplish, to always produce. And if that's you, and, and full confession, that has been me in the past year, in the past month, a difficulty stopping. If, you, if that's you, you know you, you weren't made for that. You can't keep up. You, that will not last. Your body has limitations. That's, that's part of it. But actually more, you were made not just for duty, not just to, be to, to produce. You were made for delight. That's the picture of God here, delighting in his work. And most of the time, you have to slow down to enjoy good things. We have to slow down. Now, rest, it's not, again, it's not just ceasing from our work. It's not just sleep or inactivity. It can actually be quite active, and we will get there, but only if, only if we keep going. So let's move on. You need a seventh day because God made you that way. That's point one. We see that here in Genesis 2. But Moses has more to say about Sabbath in the life of, his, of God's people. And so I want to go to Exodus sort of as we, to continue to unpack this pattern, how it plays out. So Moses is writing this account. These accounts in Genesis is really all the whole Pentateuch, the first five books together. He's writing it to a people who have just been released from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. 400 years without a regular day of rest. If the sun was up, they worked and worked and worked. It was the life of God's people for a long time. And then God saves them in a dramatic way. Moses delivers them from a tyrant through, through a body of water towards this land that he has promised to his people. If you have not read the first 15 chapters of Exodus, it's crazy. It's a crazy story of God's rescue, but between their slavery and God setting them free and their home in Canaan is 40 years of wandering in a desert, wilderness living. And there's a lot we can say about that. 
Uh, but I want to focus in on chapter 16, a specific scene where I want to anchor this kind of our second observation for this morning. So let me quickly set the stage for the story, and then we'll kind of dive in together. So God's people have been walking for 45 days in the desert. That's a detail we shouldn't miss. It's a long time. Uh, they're, they're hot. They're tired. They're hungry. They're complaining because they're hot and tired and hungry. I'm sure you've been there. Maybe not quite to this, I hope not, to this extreme. But God, God says, I hear you, I see you, I've heard your grumbling, and I've got a plan. So verse 12, here's what God says. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, Moses, say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat. In the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This had to have been just wonderful news. In the evening, every day, we're going to have meat and bread delivered to us, to the camp. Every night, every morning. But that wasn't just God providing for their hunger, though it is that. It's also a test. We, God says, I, I want to test them, see how they'll respond. See if they'll take me at my word. And they have a, they have a part to play in this plan that God has for them to feed them in the desert. So I want to start reading from verse 16. We're going to sort of enter the story, try to imagine yourself in their shoes a little bit. Here's, here's how the story continues in verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it the bread that God's going to bring, the manna he brings to them. Each one of you, as much as he can eat, you shall each take an omer, which is like two quarts worth of food, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in this tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. We'll stop there. So God says he's going to prov provide bread uh, here called manna. They, manna literally means what is it? They don't know what it is. They pick it up. What is this? Oh, that's, we'll call it that. What is it? Manna. It's, it, we're told it's like a wafer, kind of tastes like a wafer with honey. It's this dew, fr flaky dew that's on the ground. He, he provides that every morning. They only need to go out every day and gather what they need, what they could eat for the day, nothing more. Just gather what you need for your family, which was, you have to imagine, was tough. So this, this restriction, or you can only buy so many things, right? This restriction on it would be tough after weeks of scarcity. I mean, wouldn't you just want to fill a few jars up, right? Just, just make sure. Just make sure we're not hungry kind of tomorrow. Is that too, is that too much to ask here? Well, so, some of them did that, and they woke up uh, not just to, like, kind of moldy bread. Uh, we're told in the account that it turned, the manna turned into maggots. It's real gross. Uh, I've had, we've had some funky leftovers, but that is nothing like that, right? And so if this, if this is you, if you did that, you're not doing that again, right? Instead, you, you do what, what God, through Moses, has told you to do. You go, you gather the manna every day, you eat what you take, and you do the same the next day, the day after that, the day after that. It comes every day, and you go out and you gather just what you need. You eat it, and, it's, and it provide, God's provided for you for every day until the sixth day. And the sixth day as a reminder that this is not some natural thing that's happening 
in the world as a reminder that God is the one that's providing. He's in control here. On the sixth day, you were, you were told to go gather twice as much as normal. So you're supposed to get what you need for Friday and for Saturday, which is a little risky, right? I remember what happened when I kept that stuff overnight. That was, that was a bad thing. But you do it. You gather enough for Friday and Saturday, gun shy as you may be, so like, this, but this is what God told you to do. And sure enough, seventh, the seventh day comes, and there are no maggots. Everything is wonderful. It's great. It's perfect. And you look out, and there's no manna on the ground. You get a day off. That's seventh day. You don't have to go get any more food. You've got it already. God provided it for you. But you look out. This is how Moses tells us how it's told. You look out, you see others standing outside their tents, a little confused, maybe a little bit frantic, but mostly ashamed. They went out to gather, but there was nothing there. There was nothing for them. Now, one of two things happened. Either they had enough manna and went out for more on the seventh day, or they ate it all on Friday night and they were relying on that Saturday haul for their food. Either way, the test was clearly about more than food. Right, this isn't about manna, not really. God's test here was meant to uncover something in their hearts. Will my people trust me to provide? To make good on my word? To meet their needs in the way that I say that I will? I mean, God's response in verse 28 is, how long will you refuse? To those who went out to gather, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Those who went out to gather on the seventh day, they didn't believe God would provide like he said he would. Or they believed, they thought they needed more than God would give. Now, I love this story and I hate this story. I, lo I love to judge, I mean, I'm reading it through again this week, like, idiots. Why don't they just listen to them? Like, they get a day off. Why wouldn't you take a day off? But I hate this story, too. I mean, isn't this us? Isn't that you? I mean, I know I've been seen outside the tent, ready to gather failing to believe that God would make good on his word. That I can, I can rest on a seventh day. Which is precisely why we need a seventh day. We need it because we're wired that way. That's true. It's part of our design. God made us in his, in his image to rest. But we also need a seventh day to learn how to trust God. He is forming us through rest. So in the story, God, God gives them, he provides them bread to eat. That is true. He meets their needs. But he also gives them a rhythm for life in his world, for work and rest that will teach them to trust their God. Or even just to see that he is, he is the giver. He is the source. Everything comes from him. He doesn't need you or your work to provide for you. 
You don't need you or your work. God is the provider. He is the source. Sometimes we talk about uh, disciplines as ways that God forms us, shapes our hearts, trains us to obey him. These, these things that we can do that put us in the way of God's grace so that he can do what we can't do, namely, change us, change our hearts. Sabbath is one of those disciplines. Rest, it's both a wonderful gift to enjoy, but it's also a training tool for your heart, for my heart. And it can be really hard to practice, this kind of seventh day rest. Which begs the question, why? Why is it hard to rest? <laughs> I think there are many reasons, actually. We, you have to trust the manna will be enough, even when it isn't much. Sometimes it's not. We have to trust that God will provide while we sleep, <laughs> when we stop, when we cease being productive and achieving and accomplishing. And for some of us, that's, re that's really hard to do, just to stop accomplishing. Or sometimes we are in what feels like an impossible season or a situation, a, a wilderness of emptiness or hardship or confusion. And in those times, God commands us to stop and rest and trust. I love the way that Eugene Peterson says most things. I love the way that he talks about Sabbath here. And especially the, the fact that Sabbath is commanded, because it's a little odd. It's a little weird to think like that God, in the, in the Ten Commandments, one of them God says is you, you have to, Keep the Sabbath, like set it aside as holy. And he roots it in both places, in Exodus, roots it in the creation narrative. In Deuteronomy, he, he roots it in the Exodus, the fact that he saved them. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Here's how, what Peterson says, why it has to be commanded. He says, perhaps the Sabbath is commanded, not suggested, because nothing less than a command has the power to intervene in the vicious accelerating, self-perpetuating cycle of faithless and graceless busyness. Ugh. Gosh, that makes me emotional. Because that is true. I don't know if you felt that. Faithless and graceless busyness. That is what the seventh day is meant to root out of your heart. And if God doesn't command it, we would never stop. We, st we still don't. He has commanded it. But we must, friends. I must. You must. Because setting aside a seventh day for Sabbath rest, it's a rhythm that works faith, trust, belief in our God. It works it into your calendar, into your habits, and hopefully by God's grace and power works it into our hearts and we need to go we need to go back to the basics of sabbath so i want to get practical for a moment and just talk about some some very simple practices not easy simple doesn't always mean easy 
but some simple practices that can help us set aside a seventh day. And, and because the other pastors at the other campuses went with this super cheesy way of doing this, I'm doing it too. Uh, Tim can't stop me, I don't care. We're gonna call this the A, B, C, and Ds of Sabbath rest. So maybe this will help you remember some of this. So first, A, pick a day. <laughs> That's a little cheesy, but whatever, a day. 24 hours. Really, any day within a seven-day structure can work. For me, it's I'm trying to make it Fridays for a number of reasons. Uh, I don't always guard it like I should. The last couple of weeks I have because I've been thinking about this. God has been at work there. But pick a day. Now, if you're in a job that maybe is, is irregular, you're in service industry or you're hourly or... Um, or you're retired, that can make it even, diff I mean, you're always retired. You have to pick a day to cease in a different way. This could be, it can be difficult, but make it a, it could be a different day each week. It doesn't have to always be the same. What day doesn't matter nearly as much as picking a day every week? Now, there are seasons in life when this is particularly hard. Believe me, I'm there, right? Maybe you're you're parenting young children, or you're completing a medical residency, or you're caring for aging parents. There's all kinds of seasons that can make this hard. A day as a, as a habit is not meant to be legalistic, so I hope you hear that. Don't turn your seventh day into a different kind of work to earn God's favor. That will undo a lot of good in this practice. It's meant to be a discipline that refreshes and reforms you so don't be legalistic about it, but do beware of how you're being formed during seasons of sort of intense engagement or work. And as soon as you can, return to this rhythm of picking a day to set aside for rest. Next, B, be still. So whether it's right when you wake up or a moment sort of early on in the morning, take a moment and just be still with God. Maybe even in a different way than you do on a, on a daily basis and just Pause to remember that he is in charge of the world, your world. Maybe it's a prayer. Maybe it's a psalm. I think the psalms are a really good place for this. Whatever it is, just be still with your maker. Now, this is the step that many of our best attempts at Sabbath, like we, we stop just short of this, right? We take a day off, but then it becomes our Netflix day. Or we just go to the store. We go shopping. We we get real bit, we play 18 holes, uh, right? We, leisure, we spend time in leisure, which is good and should be a part of our rest and probably needs to be a bigger part of most of our time off. But we, we must be mindful of God's intention here, which is for us to remember that he is God and we are not. And you've got to take time to be still with your God and worship him, thank him. Spend a little time, extra time in his word. It's only when we get to this can we do true Sabbath rest. Okay, C is cease. Cease from everyday work. Avoid, if you can, avoid being productive in your line of work. If you're a student, don't do homework. If you're, a, if you're an attorney, don't open a case file. 
if you're a stay-at-home parent, maybe leave the dishes in the sink that day. Or maybe if you're married, your spouse shares some of those duties that, that you can't avoid. Because that, that happens. There are things we can't avoid that feel very much like work. Invite other people in. If you're single, maybe invite friends into this day. Get creative about how to stop what it is that you're always trying to accomplish and achieve and, and produce. Because this, this day is meant to be different, and that takes intentionality. It takes, real, it, it takes some work to get ready to rest. And while you're at it, cease worrying about getting that stuff done in the future. If you're going to rest, you might as well not feel bad about it. I mean, really. Cease work and cease worry. God will provide the manna. If you, if you spend all your day off worrying about how you're going to get everything done, you're not doing this. You're not trusting that God will provide in your rest. He doesn't need your work to take care of your needs. So tr trust him by ceasing. And then finally, like we've already said, rest is not just inactivity or, or, or sleeping or ceasing. It's also about delighting. D-delight. So your seventh day, it's a chance to reflect on good things, to celebrate good work to enjoy enjoyable things. I love how Richard Foster in his book called The Celebration of Discipline, he, he says, Sabbath is an island of get to in a sea of have to. An island of get to in a sea of have to. So if that, if for you, if that's Sunday, that's today, do this, gather with others at church for worship. Or go, go for a walk in a beautiful setting. Get lost in a novel and listen for echoes of God's gospel. Maybe take 10 more minutes and just read your Bible a little bit longer. Delight in good things. You know better than I do what that is for your soul. This is what God has designed for you, so don't neglect this. We sometimes struggle to just enjoy things. It's a part of Sabbath rest. Pick a, a day, be still, cease work and worry, and delight. Now, of course, these, the ABCDs of Sabbath rest, are they're only practices. Uh, they, can't, they can't set you free. They will not make you new. They don't save you. They only put you in the way of the one who, the only one who can because only Jesus can save your soul and make eternal rest possible. I mean, it's incredible what Jesus has done. I love this, the way that the story of scripture goes from start to finish. I love the story of how Jesus, the same God who makes the world to be a temple, speaks it into existence for us to dwell with him that's the story of Genesis 1 and 2. The same God, he actually becomes human and comes down to us to walk with us, to work and to struggle and to suffer and to rest and delight and finish the work that he has started. 
This, the same God who spoke over his creation work, it's finished, I'm done. The same God who speaks over creation speaks over his redemptive work. He's hanging on a cross. And what does he say? He says, it's finished. I'm done. The work is accomplished. It's completed. I've brought it to fullness. You can now enter this rest that I've accomplished for you. Not just your daily needs, but your deepest needs. Your salvation. There's nothing left to do to make yourself right with God. The work is done. You have nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to lose. That's the good news of the gospel. This day and every day. You only need, you and I only need to enter his rest. To trust him to meet your daily needs and your deep ones. To take him at his word. To trust him. We're about to sing, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise and to know thus saith the Lord. Let's pray.